Hey, it's Beth here. I've got an, I've got, I don't remember what episode this is. That's, that's bad news. But I don't want to stop because I want to say that yesterday I spoke to my cousin, Paula, and I don't know how we got on it, but we got on the subject of my best friend, Debbie Price. Kit and I got married in Houston. I'm like 21, 22, new wife, not blending in like river, no, it was called Sugar Creek, this big older, it wasn't really older, it was older than I was, community with a golf course and a, a country club and all that. And then we moved to Dallas and I think, oh, this is my big break. Within one year, we're in Dallas, away from everything we knew, just the two of us. And I'm not blending. It's like I am really in suburbia now. Everybody has seven and eight year olds. So I'm sitting there for six months just twiddling, twiddling my thumbs with my dog, Thor. We had a pool that was fun and he and I would play catch in the pool, have a ball, but still no friends. One day I'm out in the back. We, we share an alley in Dallas. The front yards don't have cars, it's very pretty. Anyway, I'm, I'm in getting the garbage can or something and this crazy, ugly, pea green station wagon comes by. And this woman leans over across from this little kid, opens the window and says, hi, my name is Debbie. I heard you're from New York. Could you come over? I'm so lonely. I was like, what? Drop the garbage can and follow her into her house. It's three, it's three o'clock, our magic moment. We had a cup of Lipton's tea that she brought from New York. Don't sell it in Texas. She kept an Edamons coffee cake in the freezer. Don't sell that in Texas either. And we had our first sit down tea party with her kids who were hilarious. Adam, who was three, Greg, who was like one and a half and so cute. And Heidi, the schnauzer vacuum cleaner. Hold on. Alexa, volume down. I hope that works. It was the beginning of the greatest friendship in the world. I'm, I'm so crazy about her. I'm going to school. Um, I'm a docent at the museum, which is not a fancy docent. I was actually a waitress in the restaurant, but it was a fun group of women. But every day I came back by three o'clock so I could do this. And then within six months, I find out I'm infertile the hard way. The doctor calls up and tells me that I have syphilis. I go into the worst crying jack I've ever had. Kid comes home for lunch. He says, it's impossible. You did the blood, blood test and you don't look like a person who'd have syphilis. He goes back to work, calls the doctor. He's gonna do another test. I go running over to Debbie's house. We're hardly even friends at this point. We're, we're close neighbors. Fall onto her kitchen table, which was this wooden butcher table that we adored. And I tell her I have syphilis front of her kids, in front of everyone, and syphilis was a big thing back then. She says, no, you don't. You don't look like you have syphilis. Well, that cemented me to her, that she would be like that. And then it was over, and then we just had a cup of tea. Kid finds out I don't have syphilis, but I do have infertility. So Debbie becomes, Debbie and Kit are my emotional support throughout infertility. She came to the doctor with me one time 
she had two boys. The first was a very traumatic uh, birth. Everything got all messed up. The doctor, we found out the doctor was kind of mad at women who wanted to do natural childbirth. So we took it out on some of the patients and he took it out on Debbie. And she was like in the last stage of childbirth for six hours, kind of destroyed everything in her body. And the doctor actually retired pretty soon after this, no suing or anything like that, but he just realized that his days were over. But her body was destroyed. So she quickly had another little boy and then she had to have a hysterectomy, but they kept her fallopian tubes. So she comes with me to the doctor and she says, I just want to meet the doctor. I'm like, fine, he's wonderful. Dr. Weinstein, you're going to love him. She takes him aside and she asks Dr. Weinstein if I could use, if she could take her, if he could take her fallopian tubes out of her body and put them in mine. I mean, who does that? And it was going to be major surgery. There wasn't any of this microscopic stuff yet. That's the kind of friend she was. And then, I don't know, one year in, we get to this moment where we're talking about our last names. We were, we were too busy with the kids. We just lived in the moment mostly, but we kind of went back in time. Her last name was Burkle. My last name was Merkel. Her father's name was Bill Burkle. My father's name was Matt Merkel. We're both on Long Island. We saw pictures of each other's dad. They look, they look like twins. Our dads look like twins. It was family now. There was nothing, nothing that could ever go wrong. We got together every day at three o'clock. It never got old, never wasn't fun. The kids were fantastic. Some days were different than others. And the days that were more intense or they were more a unit were the days that Debbie and the boys, before I would get there, this makes me want to cry. She would turn her playroom into an airplane with wings, the, all the cushions would become wings and they would, there was a cockpit. There was, there were places, they, they went on plane rides. I guess once every week or two and somebody else would be the pilot and sometimes they'd have turbulence and when I would get there on those days there was kind of a calm kind of like a camaraderie between them and you'd always know that they played airplane she was such an incredible mother so incredible and little little Heidi when little Heidi died she had to take Heidi Heidi was sick she took her to the vet she she had an accident in her station wagon. She got Chuck. Chuck was a crazy puppy. She thought Chuck needed a pool. They got a pool and Chuck, we would play this catch game and we'd have, Chuck would have five balls and he, he would have to get all five out at the same time or he couldn't come out of the pool. She got a pool she, in her backyard for her dog and she was right. That's what this dog needed. She had a cat named Inky that I never saw, who lived to be 23. But Chuck was, Chuck was just great. So that was, and then we would go to the neighborhood restaurant at least once, at least once a week, because Greg loved it. Two years old, he would say, the first thing he said that I heard was, let's go home neighborhood. Let's go to the neighborhood. Let's go to the neighborhood. And they were watching Sesame Street, but they thought they had their own neighborhood, which was this hamburger place. So we'd, we'd have an early dinner, 
little hamburger. And every single time we went, Greg, the chair was, this little high chair in the restaurant was made poorly. First time we went, he fell down, hit his head. He didn't care. After that, we would watch. The wait staff would, would watch. The cook would come out because there'd be a moment every single time we went to the neighborhood where Greg would fall out of the high chair. But we had gotten so quick and so good. I was in charge of his head. She was in charge of the chair. And we would save him every single time. And it just happened. And it just like, just like stay-at-home moms. I mean, it just... It just was part of the day. <clears throat> and he, th he thought the hamburger was worth all this. And we did too. If it made him happy, it made me happy. <clears throat> she would have all of her workers come after three o'clock. Because one time I got there at three o'clock and this two linoleum guys were putting down this linoleum floor. And there was a huge line through the center of her kitchen. It was a mistake. It was going to be horrible. There was already dirt in it. They were so bad at laying floors. And she said, I want to say something to him. <clears throat> we looked at this guy. One of them looked like like a toad. Like he was, he was tiny and skittish. The other guy looked like, like a bad guy. And so I went up to him to try to talk to him. She was so scared of him. And I mentioned the floor. And he just said, it's not, it's gonna flatten out. And then he showed me his hand. And he had a slit between his um, middle finger and his forefinger. And it was from punching a guy at a bar a week before. He's, the skin slit. That's how hard he punched this guy. And he said, I'm just telling you this because uh, it's going to take me a little longer to finish the floor. We were terrified. Terrified. So, I mean, anybody who came to the house, it was after 3 o'clock so she wouldn't be alone. And then I, I did a remodel on my house, still going through infertility, still the most horrible thing in the world. Two major surgeries, two minor surgeries. Every day she'd prop me back up. Hydrotubations every month. I did everything. Everything. And... We, we started a remodel, and the head remodeling guy looked like a movie star. And I'd leave the house at three o'clock, and I'd say, come over to Debbie's if you need me. One day, this hunk comes to her front door. She looks at him and smiles and just says, come in. It was hilarious. I mean, she was so complicated and so funny and so sweet. And anyway, when Brett came, she lost her mind, absolutely lost her mind. She was so happy for me, she couldn't even talk. The first night he was home, she comes over. She is shaking, she can't hold him. She was so, we were so empathic, we were so united that this baby meant as much to her as it meant to me. She always loved him. We were in heaven, <clears throat> but we were only in heaven for six months because Things went wrong in her marriage and her husband is an alcoholic and he wasn't coming home at all. And so she wanted to get a divorce. It was like our whole little magic bubble of all the time in the world and all the slow cups of tea and 
laughs we'd have were over. She had gone to the Catherine Porter Secretarial School in New York City, the one where you wore white gloves. So Ross Perot actually wanted her to be a secretary. She was so amazing at everything. He had this company called EDS. She took the test. I mean, and she could shorthand like no one else in the world. No one else in Texas, let's say. And she knew the skills, how to answer the phone, how to keep everything going. And so she started on this career. I would get Greg in the afternoon, and that was fine. But she'd pick up Greg so fast because she had to get at him, and she had to make dinner. And all of our free time was gone, and then the kids were playing soccer. And But we still kept it together. When she could, she would call me, like at night, whenever, and we would talk. Everything was fine. Between us, we just didn't have any time. Luckily, Van, oh, and I, and then I had to move. Well, Van stopped drinking. That's the big thing. She started Al-Anon. He started AA. She made Al-Anon friends. Everything came back together for their marriage, for their boys. That was great. But at the very same moment, I'm moving to Austin. The, the amazing thing about us is whatever little time we had, we picked up the ball right where we left it. There was no catch-up ever ever in our relationship. The only problem that we had was that long distance was expensive. And so we'd have to, the phone calls were rough. And I would come back to visit her because I just had two little ones. She had all these soccer games in school and everything. And we, we'd just get right back to the table because she didn't have to work anymore. Right back to the butcher block, block table. And it was my kids playing on the floor. And it was just the same. And then we'd pick up her kids, and then who God knows what we had to do. Soccer, dance, whatever these kids were doing. I mean, Greg became a rock star, so that that was a little different. The other one just played baseball. So we did everything everybody wanted. The boys were hilarious. So we did we did keep it together. Then the amazing thing happened, which was there was no more long distance. So we just kept the whole going and I'd see her sometimes if I if I got a chance that's what I wanted to do and we always had the very same connection nothing ever stopped it her Greg had an older son who had brain cancer his name was Ian we got so united on the Ian front Ian loved me he laughed and I we, we had this laughing Jack thing that we would do loved that boy she that boy became her very best friend and she would she would pick him up they'd go to Wendy's they'd look out the window as cars went by she was so crazy about him they got a motor home so that they could travel with him Van Debbie me Ian was irresistible so that's how the later years went then the worst thing was Debbie was a huge smoker much better than I was. Those embers would be sizzling by the time she was finished inhaling. She quit when she was pregnant. She quit for quite a while afterwards, but when things got a little rough in her marriage, she started smoking again. And then she quit. It was the hardest. I thought I had a problem quitting. She had such a big problem quitting, but she did it again. And then in her late 50s, she gets non-smokers lung cancer which we thought 
was so ironic and so cruel. And she was okay with it. We, we were okay with it. And then it went into her bloodstream. And the doctor said, whatever you want to do, you better do it now. So I was, I visited with her and then I came home and we had birthdays. My birthday was the 23rd, hers was the 26th. I always screwed it up. I thought it was the 24th, the 25th. I'm just bad at birthdays. The only ones I have down are Brett, Matt, and Kit. Those I memorized, I tattooed them to my arm. She didn't care. We didn't celebrate our birthdays. We celebrate the kids' birthdays. We just, you know, we'd have an extra cupcake, big deal. But this year when she was dying, I forgot her birthday again. And I called her up on the 27th. And I was crying, like sobbing. Debbie, 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 how could I have forgotten your birthday? I mean, I hate myself. I just want to, I want to, I want to throw myself in front of a train. I am so, so sorry. She said, Beth, I said, Debbie, this is unforgivable, unforgivable. She said, Beth, just listen to me for one second. I said, what? She goes, do you have any idea how refreshing it is to be treated like shit when you're dying? I'm like, what? She said, everybody around me is talking to me, telling me how much they love me, where everything has to be my way. Everyone gets out of my way. Everyone keeps hugging me. And here you come along and you forget my birthday. And it was the greatest present you could have given me. I was like, what? What? So Beth, please understand that that moment was precious to me because it took me back to the way things were before I was dying. Two days later, I get a phone call from her and she said, I got a present you can give me. I said, anything. She says, could you get here? Could you just hop in your car and get here? I'm home. Van is bathing me and he doesn't know how to get the nooks and crannies. Under my arm, the back of my ears, I'm going crazy. I said, yeah, I'll be right there. We'll put a big t-shirt on you, one of Ann's t-shirts, and I will get every single nook and cranny. She called me at seven o'clock. I said, I will be there tomorrow at 10. I couldn't get there because she was in the hospital. That's what happened. So the next time I see her, she's in a coma. And she didn't even look sick. She looked beautiful. And all the AA and Al-Anon people there that were there, there must have been 10 people. And Adam was there and Greg was coming. And I just wanted to talk to, to her alone. One thing I did do was she kept going. She, she was talking. I didn't even know you could do that, saying no, no, no. And I looked at her and I told the nurse, she's in pain. She's just in pain. And the nurse said, well, you know, I guess I could give her something, but I really don't see it. I said, she's in pain. So the nurse gave her a shot and she stopped doing that. She stopped saying, no, no, no. And then one other little thing I did was, and I'd seen this in a movie or read it in a book, that people in a coma can hear. Van was the greatest singer. 
they would be, when they were dating, they'd be at a stop sign, windows open, and he'd be singing to Debbie, and people at, or stoplight, people at the stoplight would clap around them and say, that's gorgeous. So he had a beautiful voice. They had a couple of songs that kept him together. And I said, Van, when everybody leaves tonight, I want you to sing to her, sing your songs to her. And she said, he told me later on that that worked and her little feet started going up and down and she tapped her finger for one of the really good songs. So two little things. So I'm glad I went, but on the way home, I got so lost. It takes about, well, for a lot of people it takes, for really fast people, it takes two and a half hours. For normal people, it takes three. For me, it would take four or four and a half to get home. This day, it took me eight hours to get home because I, I did everything wrong. I drove to two towns further towards San Antonio. Then I came back and I went west towards Houston. I called Kit, I, I, I didn't know what to do. And I was in a rental because my car's so old. Finally get home and then she's gone. And the thing is, she's not really gone because yesterday I talked about her. People don't want to talk to you about your best friend that you lost. It, but it's a big, a big, big grief. It's horrible. And I just didn't realize how horrible it was until yesterday when I brought her back. And it was so funny because I was talking to Paula, felt so close to her that I actually called her Debbie. And I haven't done that with anyone since Debbie. That's how great it is. Find somebody to talk to about even if you've lost your dog or a best friend or a town you lived in. It's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. And find somebody who'll listen. Bring it back up. I feel so much closer to her today. I feel like I did bring her back. She's always inside me, but the little stories just brought her right back to me. So, it's just amazing. Good old Deb. I swear, if I, if, if I killed somebody, or no, if I was holding a smoking gun and there was a person dead in front of me and I'm holding the gun, that's the only two people in the room and the police came and Debbie came and I said, Debbie, I didn't do it. She would believe me. She would fight for me. She would absolutely believe me. So would Kit, so would Matt. But to find a friend that would believe you, no matter what the evidence, that's what, always what I wanted in a friend, always what I wanted. And I had it, I had it for a long time. No matter what complications came our way, we just didn't let them in. We kept it strong, we kept it straight. She told me at the end that I was her, you have these caregivers and she had caregivers coming in, but she wouldn't let them bathe her. So that's how that happened. She said I was her, her emotional caregiver. And I was so happy to be her emotional caregiver. But I'm so selfish that I wish she was back here for me. I wish, I wish we could have maybe all the people I love just on the very same day or something. But the fact that she's not here for me and that I'm not, I'm not here for her anymore is one of the greatest losses, and that's what loss is. Loss is always the greatest loss, is that 
whatever place that person had in your life. But this is funny. Van remarried. And he remarried somebody that looks an awful lot like Debbie. And he looks happy to me. So I can't understand that, although I'm happy for him. Really happy for him. I don't want him to be alone. I don't want him to be sad. And that's a whole different deal, whatever that was. But to me, this place, this, this little tiny place that was for Debbie, it's just still there for Debbie. It's just always gonna be there for Debbie. So, but I talked about her. It was, instead of being the saddest thing in the world, and that Paula laughed at the funny things that Debbie did, it just made it all so wonderful. So, just wanted to say that and kind of feel a little sad, but a little more sane. Keeping her alive is what I want to do. So, anyway, that's my day. And it's raining in Texas, which is a miracle. So I'm sane, and I will be back.